Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights Church. And we're in the season of Epiphany, which means manifestation or appearing. This season commemorates the appearance of Jesus to the Magi, who were the first Gentiles, the first non-Jews, to acknowledge Jesus as king. Interestingly, in our passage today, we're going to see Gentiles coming to acknowledge David as king. We're preaching through First and Second Samuel, which tell the story of the rise and reign of King David. And as Colleen said, Christians are all about Jesus. In fact, we believe that the Bible is all about Jesus. And so in preaching through First and Second Samuel, we're hoping to show that the rise and reign of King David parallels and foreshadows the life and ministry of King Jesus. Throughout First and Second Samuel, David is anointed on three separate occasions. In 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed by Samuel as king to be. In 2 Samuel 2, David is anointed by the tribe of Judah. He becomes the king of that tribe. And now, in 2 Samuel 5, David is anointed by all of Israel. He becomes the king of all 12 tribes of Israel. Let's read from 2 Samuel 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Okay. Hebron is mentioned three times in three verses here, so we should probably take note of the location. The city of Hebron, which still exists today, is the burial place of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of, of Israel. It was at Hebron that God made his covenant with Abraham, promising to give him a son. Okay? And so here in chapter 5, we see David, a son of Abraham, ruling as king over the tribe of Judah at Hebron. Now, there was a prophecy in Genesis 49 that the scepter would never pass from Judah, that Judah would rule the other tribes of Israel, that Judah would have the obedience of the people. Guess what? History shows that from David to Jesus, that scepter never departed from Judah. And here in 2 Samuel 5, the king of Judah earns the respect and obedience of the other tribes of Israel. Elsewhere, it says that Israel was of a single mind to make David king. Let's keep reading. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. Take note of David's age. We're going to come back to that. But in other words, the tribes of Israel come to David and say, number one, we are your bone and flesh. We are your flesh and blood. We are members of your body. We are your family. And this was very convenient uh, because Israel had nothing to do with brother David while he was poor and on the run. Now that he has been vindicated, now that God has made him powerful, everybody's jumping on the gravy train. Number two, they say, David, when Saul was king, you were really the one out there protecting us and fighting our battles from behind the scenes, and we see that now. 
And number three, and it's interesting that this was number three, they say, the Lord did anoint you as the shepherd prince of Israel. And this third one was very important. The title shepherd calls to mind a couple other men in the Bible, namely Jacob and Joshua. So Jacob was a successful shepherd, and his 12 sons were the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel. The, the 12 tribes descended from Jacob's 12 sons. And so here we see David, who is also a successful shepherd, acting as a father figure to the 12 tribes of Israel. He is bringing unity to the family again. All right? The title shepherd also links David to Joshua. In Numbers chapter 27, Moses calls upon Joshua to lead the people of Israel so that they would not be like sheep without a shepherd. Now, Joshua led Israel all the way to Jerusalem, but he failed to fully occupy Jerusalem. That's important. Because what does David do as soon as they make him king? He leads Israel into Jerusalem, he drives out their enemies, and he sets up shop there. He makes Jerusalem the capital city of Israel. And the image here is David completing the Israelite occupation of the promised land. David is completing that. Let's read beginning in verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David, and David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. I will try my best to explain that. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward, and David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. So again, David's first act as king over a united Israel is to take Jerusalem and complete Israel's occupation of the promised land, the land that God had promised to them. And the Jebusites, who were living in Jerusalem at the time, mocked David. They say, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. Now, it's important to understand why they taunted David in this way, because there are some commentators who claim that David hated people with disabilities, which is frankly absurd. In a couple weeks, we're going to come to chapter 9, where David welcomes a lame man to come and feast at his table forever. That's not what you do when you hate people with disabilities. So what is going on here? Many commentators suggest the Jebusites had erected bronze statues or false gods in whom they trusted to defend them from attack. In Psalm 115, David refers to false gods as idols that have eyes but do not see, blind, and have feet but do not walk, lame. And so when David says he hates the lame and the blind, he's not talking about people with disabilities. He's talking about idolatry. David hates idols. Another possible interpretation is this. The Jebusites were simply saying, our city is so well fortified, so strong, that even our weakest inhabitants can defend it. 
It reminds me of the overconfidence of Goliath, who also mocked and taunted David. It also reminds me of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Um, Do you remember the scene? King Arthur comes to the well-fortified castle. There's French guys up there hurling insults at him. It's exactly like that. It's exactly what's happening here. Not exactly. (laughs) So when David says he hates the lame and the blind, he's returning the taunt and referring to the Jebusites according to their own self-designation. David is rubber, the Jebusites are glue, that type of situation. But here's the problem. It's a real problem. For centuries, the Jewish authorities used David's quote here to justify excluding the blind and the lame from worship in the temple. Now, to be clear, there is nothing in Scripture prohibiting disabled people from entering the temple. In fact, in Jeremiah 31, God explicitly states that he desired to welcome the blind and the lame back into his house. Then, Matthew 21, we see King Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a war horse, a donkey. And he goes straight to the temple, and there he encounters the blind and the lame. And what does he do? He heals them. He heals them right there in the temple. And so Jesus makes it crystal clear for us that excluding the disabled from worship in the temple was directly contrary to God's heart. So that was a tangent, but I didn't want you thinking King David, who was a man after God's own heart, hated people with disabilities. David is going to do some terrible things. This just isn't one of them. So, how did David defeat the Jebusites? Well, at the time, the city of Jerusalem was considered impenetrable. But it appears as though the Jebusites had overlooked their water system. And so David sends a group of men, essentially through a drainage pipe, into the heart of the city to take it from the inside out. On Wednesday morning, my wife had our infant son dressed and ready to go, and she didn't want him to spit up on his outfit. And so she put a burp cloth on him. It was a 360-degree burp cloth, essentially impenetrable, right? What she did not anticipate was what ended up coming through the drainage pipe (laughs) to take the outfit from the inside. (laughs) And now you have the picture. (laughs) So, David moves the capital city of Israel to Jerusalem. Jerusalem becomes an epicenter, a, a center point and focal point of Jewish life. But more than that, this is so important, more than that, Jerusalem becomes an epicenter for the nations. Let's read verses 11 and 12. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he, ex- he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Last week, Dodds mentioned how David was wandering through the desert building relationships with Gentiles. Well, those relationships are coming in handy now in the form of alliances. And according to verse 12, Israel is being exalted before the nations. 
In this case, the Gentile nations helped to build David's house. But later on, the Gentile nations are actually going to come and help build the temple, God's house. In other words, God's people were beginning to fulfill their intended purpose. God's people were beginning to serve as a kingdom of priests where the nations could come and worship the one true God. They were beginning to function like a house of prayer for all peoples. I think it would be helpful to summarize the 20 years of David's life leading up to this point. Okay, so when David was just a boy, probably 10 to 13, Samuel anointed him king to be. David served faithfully and waited patiently for God to give him that throne. And once he got it, he used his influence to bless others and to bring unity to God's people. And now, having unified God's people, others begin to recognize that Israel's God is worthy of worship. Okay? David serves faithfully, waits patiently, and once he gets it, he blesses others. He brings unity, and the nations come to see that the Lord is good. There is so much we can learn here. Like David, we should take what the Lord gives us with contentment. We should use our gifts and our influence to serve God's people, to build up the body of Christ into maturity and unity. If we're doing that, the rest of the world is going to notice. In John 17, Jesus tells us that the world will believe and worship when the church is one, when the church is united in love. Israel's unity was rooted in and built upon David's identity, who God said David was. The people said, we will unite under your leadership because you are our brother, you are our king, and the Lord has appointed you as shepherd and ruler over us. Likewise, our unity is rooted in and built upon Jesus' identity, who God says Jesus is. We say to him, we, we unite under your leadership because you are our brother, you are our king, God has appointed you as our shepherd and ruler. Our community is rooted in nothing else. And that's partly why our neighborhood parishes are not organized according to our interests or life stages or experiences or opinions or social standings because those things are flimsy. They are subject to change. Rather, our unity is built upon Jesus' identity as our brother, shepherd, king, and that is never subject to change. That is true gospel community. That, that is the essence of Christ-centered community. Finding people who look like you, think like you, act like you is not unity. Unity is laying aside our differences because we have something in common that's so, so much more fundamental and we have a common vision for something so much better. And yes, that's, that's hard. But the difficulty of this type of living is our first clue that it's, it's worth pursuing. 
The best things in life are achieved through difficulty. Running a marathon, earning a degree, giving birth to a child, learning to love people who tend to fail you. Christian unity is achieved through difficulty. This is also why we talk about building relationships, exposing those relationships to the Christian community, and sharing the gospel. Just like David was wandering around the desert building relationships with Gentiles, we build relationships with our neighbors and coworkers. Why? Because one day we're going to get the chance to introduce them to our community, and we pray that they'll see and hear and taste and feel true love and true <laughs> unity. We pray that they will give their allegiance to our King Jesus. We pray that they will join us in building him a house, the church. Turn with me to Luke chapter 3, or you can just find it on the screen behind me. We're going to read beginning in verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Think back. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. Okay, and then Luke after what we just read, Luke launches into a genealogy. Everybody loves a good genealogy, right? This, this is actually very interesting. Luke chapter 3 traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to David, to Judah, to Jacob, to Isaac, Abraham, Noah, Adam, who was the son of God, it says. This is the very last genealogy you'll find in the Bible. There's no more need for genealogies at that point. Because in Christ, we are all sons of God now. Everything has been building to this point. This is the climax of human history. And when John baptized Jesus, he was anointing him, anointing Jesus as the king of Israel, the king to be. The genealogy shows that Jesus had a legal right to the throne, and the Lord was giving it to him. So I made a slide with some of these parallels. Um, I will not be uh, working through them. It's just for your viewing pleasure. Um, but David united Israel and welcomed the nations. He unites Israel. He welcomes the nations. Jesus ratches that up a notch. Jesus comes to actually unite the nations into one kingdom. All right? David came to Jerusalem to conquer. Why did Jesus come to Jerusalem? To be killed. Jesus came to Jerusalem to be killed. Through death and resurrection, King Jesus has been exalted and enthroned over everything. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he, he's sending us out to the nations, and he's using us to call the nations back to himself. And the nations are coming, and they're coming to build his house. 
the church. And so if we want the nations, beginning with our neighbors, to come and see that our God is good, we need to be a church after God's own heart, a church that values unity. And part of that is receiving from the Lord with gratitude and contentment. David suffered for a decade plus in the wilderness, running for his life. Maybe you suffer from chronic illness. Maybe your job is something less than your dream job. Maybe your parish is something less than your dream parish. I guarantee you it is, actually. Maybe you are single against your will. Maybe you are married, but the person you married has left you emotionally. Maybe the prospect of having a child is diminishing. Maybe parenting feels like death and the forfeiture of personal fulfillment. I don't know, but those things are real. Those things are real. David's decade in the wilderness was real. That's how we got most of the Psalms. It hurts. It's hard. The Lord knows that, and the church should affirm that. But, whatever it is, let's pray for the faith we need to receive these things with patience and contentment. When we do that, when we're a community who does that, we're going to be so much better at loving and serving one another. Our unity will deepen, our family will thrive, and our neighbors are going to come help us build this house. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for King Jesus, who has established his bride, his church. He's building his house here on earth. And, and I thank you, God, that you have called us to that task. It is humbling. We ask, God, that you would make us patient. We ask, God, that you would give us contentment. Make us faithful. Help us to use our gifts and our influence to bring unity and maturity to the body of Christ. Make us, make us into a community that our neighbors want to be a part of. Build your house. Establish your kingdom. All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.